This is a McKillop podcast. Welcome to Exploring Curiosity, Resiliency, and Hope, a podcast for times of challenge and transformation. We are excited for your presence as we learn, grow, and evolve from a multitude of voices and wisdom. This is a space for conversations and curiosity, finding ways to be resilient with all that is happening in our personal lives and the world, and maybe finding an embodied hope to live by. We join our host, Trevor, for part three of a three-part conversation with Professor Loretta Coleman-Brown, who is here to share the wisdom of Howard Thurman with us. We encourage you to listen to the earlier two parts. I think that's also part of his legacy, which is to be clear about what sounds genuine to you, genuine to you in your own self, and your own life, but also in others as well. Because, you know, there are lots of people out there that may sell you or tell you anything. And it's so important to be able to get in touch with that part of yourself that can sense that this is genuine. Professor Brown has found a kinship with Howard Thurman, who was a mystic and contemplative, and worked for nonviolence and sacred activism. Howard Washington Thurman lived from 1899 to 1981 and played a leading role in many social justice movements and organizations of the 20th century. He was one of the principal architects of the modern nonviolent civil rights movement and a key mentor to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. One of his most notable works of writing is the book Jesus and the Disinherited, published in 1949. We are so grateful for Professor Brown introducing us to the work and wisdom of Howard Thurman. Well, it's lovely to be back again with you, Professor Brown, as we gather for our, our final session on this series. And it's been wonderful exploring with you uh, both your own personal story and then the, the, the story and the wisdom of Howard Thurman as we've looked at spiritual identity uh, and then uh, spiritual practices. And now today, uh, I'm looking forward to our, our, our next uh, Zooming Around, uh, your story and Howard Thurman's uh, story and wisdom. And do you have a favorite quote that you would like to begin our time with? Well, there's one that, of course, he's most famous for, which is, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and then go do that. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. And I've always loved that quote because it, it is the epitome of listening for a calling, you know, or listening to your passion. And to be able to become clear about what makes you come alive, you know, to, to really reflect on that. Um, it's very similar to, you know, others who have written that you're, your joy and your calling are very similar. And so because we have lived in a world where typically uh, people may pursue a profession or, or vocation because they think it's gonna offer them financial security 
or they'll be able to live a particular lifestyle that for someone to be able to be alive in the world to to feel like that they are fulfilling their purpose and 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 that joy that energy that they bring with them is infectious it's contagious so i i i i've been drawn to that particular quote uh, for a long time, but he he has some some quotes that are very similar as well. So another very famous one is <clears throat> There is something in every one of you that waits and listens for the sound of the genuine in yourself It is the only true guide you will ever have and if you cannot hear it You will all of your life spend your days on the ends of strings that someone else somebody else pulls don't you don't you think that's just such a beautiful quote? It's my about, favorite. It's one of my favorite quotes. It's one too. of your favorites. It, yes, it's just. Yeah. How often do we get stuck and stuck and 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 let ourselves be pulled by someone else's chains and miss that joy? Yes, yes, and and so I think that's also part of his legacy, which is to be clear about what sounds genuine to you, genuine to you in your own self and your own life, but also in others as well. Because, you know, there are lots of people out there that may sell you or tell you anything. And it's so important to be able to get in touch with that part of yourself that can sense that this is genuine. This is you know, this is genuine for me or this is genuine for someone else who's engaging with me. And then he has one more that's really, they're all in the same vein, but certainly were, were spoken at different times. There's one that uh, says, follow the grain in your own wood. Uh, it is precisely the unique, special and unrepeatable being of the beloved that inspires desire and devotion. And apparently he said this to Sam Keane, who writes about it in To Love and Be Loved. But, you know, and in fact that the, the earlier one, Don't Ask the World What the World Needs, etc., that was also came up in a conversation that he had with a gentleman. So, you know, sometimes these fabulous quotes would come out of the mist of a conversation that he was having with someone, but just think about that. Follow the grain in your own wood. Uh, we we know how important grain is in wood, and to be able to follow the grain of wood, but to but to be in touch with what your grain is, and 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 you know just this general idea of you don't need to go out there and copy somebody else or be like somebody else. You are a unique creation, and so just be that. Hmm. Would both yourself and Howard Thurman, would, would if you followed that unique grain of the wood, would would you think that would bring social change to our world? Absolutely. I, I I'm not sure if uh, very many people have either <clears throat> discovered what their grain is, or uh, what it is that makes them come alive or what the genuine is, uh, we, we so easily begin to socialize children. 
at very early ages into preparing for a life that their parents may envision for them. It may not be what the child is drawn to, but you know, you have parents enrolling children in, in sort of prep school, preschool, so that they can get into the best college, et cetera, have this wonderful life. And so I think we would, the entire world would be in a different place if we were able to allow that unique individual to unfold as they, you know, grow and develop. And with those quotes, uh, there's a certain like element of universality, and I'd even say nonviolence and love. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's it's basically a call to uh, be to to not only be who you are, but to accept people as they are, and uh, to allow uh, nature as it is. Um, so I, I, I sort of feel like uh, uh, certainly Howard Thurman, he was a pacifist. Uh, we know that. And I think this was a part of him from the very beginning, although it was reinforced when he met with Gandhi and you know talked about the importance of um, nonviolence in social change. And I think in part it's because it basically um, uh, dismantles or disarms people when you are not returning their violence or their hatred, that you are in fact just standing your ground um, in, as, in, in a loving way or as, as much as you can. Um, and, you know, there's another quote by him that says, in the presence of an overwhelming overwhelming sincerity on the part of the disinherited. The dominant themselves are caught with no defense. They are thrown back upon themselves for their rating. So when, when you are not attacking back, it, it sometimes gives people pause. Well, and you know, in our modern day language, we'd call it, well, that's very contemplative. Yeah. Uh, like Richard Rohr has this phrase, uh, definition of contemplation that I'm sort of using more, but it's, it's it's a long, loving look or gaze at something. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of it's sort of it reminds me, or Howard Thurman reminds me of yeah, if if you can really hear the sound of the genuine yourself and then have the curiosity to hear it in someone else. I mean that's a that's a moment of. Uh, holiness even if it's uncomfortable for people yes yes it is and and you know there's another uh, quote that he used in jesus and the disinherited says the religion of jesus says love your enemies it may be hazardous but you must do it what would howard thurman uh, say to people today about how to bring about wholeness and social change? Well, I suspect that he would say that this is not so different from the times in which he lived, which were (laughs) unfortunately in the 30s and the 40s, where there was still a lot of violence and unrest and some might describe as domestic terrorism. Uh, But 
I think he he was very very interested in working on two sides at once, which is that you're working on the inner life of the individual, and at the same time, as you gain strength in that and in knowing what it is that you're being called to do, then you are then prepared to go out. You know, you go in you know, to to that peaceful center, and then you go out to deal with violent confrontation. But you know that you are being called to make social change. And I'm thinking right now, um, as we are taping this during a time when we are honoring um, the memory of John Lewis, who basically lived that, uh, lived by that principle. He was very committed to uh, nonviolent social change and certainly uh, was one who read Jesus' and the disinherited over and over again. He, he talks about that in the documentary, Backs Against the Wall, the Howard Thurman story. So, he, you know, he spent his life devoted to that. And, and, and isn't it fascinating, you know? He, he, I think even in joining Congress, he was still committed to the same thing, which is, I want to see some change. I want to see some transformation. And so... I, I think that Thurman would uh, be encouraging people to do the same things that they're doing now. Uh, but although I think he would probably want to uh, encourage them to seek some uh, maybe spiritual guidance about what it is that you need to do and when. Uh, you know, that kind of contemplative spirit of pausing and asking as opposed to assuming that you know exactly what it is that you should be doing, where you should be going, or what you should be saying. So for you yourself personally, Professor Brown, how, how is the sound of the genuine called to you? And what does that look like for you going in and then going out with, with your life? Well, I must admit that I was a, I don't want to call it a victim, but certainly a, a typically socialized child, maybe female child. Um, I, I, I think I stepped out of the, uh, the, the boundaries categories by choosing to uh, become a college professor. Uh, but I suspect that I had a, a calling that I wasn't paying attention to, to promote contemplative spirituality from the time I was in college and uh, I, I, I just didn't. I mean, you know, I did the typical, okay, you go to school, you, then you go to graduate school, and then you get a job, and, you know, you're in the job and doing all those things that it requires. And it really wasn't until uh, probably my heart transplant that I, I began to think there could be another way. Um, I could be doing other things. And although it took uh, probably another 10 years to extricate myself from the academy, uh, I'm, this is the, probably my most joyous time of my life, you know, because I feel like, one, promoting contemplative spirituality is, is the sound of the genuine in me, that that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, and two, that I, see, I can see the shift in people as I go 
from place to place, leading retreats. Sometimes I receive emails from people thanking me uh, for introducing them to Howard Thurman or introducing them to contemplative spirituality. Uh, I, I led a retreat last week with 100 people on Zoom, <laughs> and I had you know, several emails. Uh, one from a woman who said that, she said, I just wanted to get up and do the holy dance <laughs> retreat, which would have been totally inappropriate, but because she was a contemplative, she was a closeted contemplative, and she just didn't realize that there was this whole other world in which people sat in silence and they could hear the voice of the spirit or they could hear the voice of God. And that she had been this way for years, but she just wasn't in an environment that supported that, which in many uh, religious environments, there is no support for spirituality or spiritual formation. Um, in fact, there's sometimes an espoused fear of it. And so she was just delighted to know that there was, there are people out there that actually pray like that and um, gather in groups to pray like that. And so I've been I've been sending her more information about you know connecting to uh, contemplative activities and not only in our city but in other places around the, the states. I was pondering uh, as you were as I was listening to you that part of our, of of us evolving as human beings is is also our institutions evolving too and it does seem i think you're so right that <clears throat> excuse me churches have been really afraid of spirituality uh, a lot of them and like how do we change that or or like like when you when you read howard thurman or or listen to you it's like there's this deep yearning that uh, there's a place where people can be safe and explore who they are and then give who they are. And that sort of creates this evolutionary change in the world. Yes. In part, I think that many religious leaders or <clears throat> church leaders believe that if a person can have a direct experience of God, why would they come to church? And so then there would be no use for the organization and then they would not have a job, right? Which is not necessarily true uh, because I think part of, particularly contemplative spirituality is that it uh, affirms this journey towards unity, towards community. And so I, I suspect that if there were more opportunities to learn about spirituality or to participate in um, meditation or contemplative prayer groups, et cetera, that they would find that, in fact, their numbers might go up. So to give an example, Howard Thurman co-founded a church in 1944, the, uh, fellowship, the Church of the Fellowship of All Peoples in San Francisco was the first intentional interracial church. Um, not only did he want to bring he wanted to bring all people together, and it didn't matter whether they were Christian or not. He was very bothered by uh, this exclusivity within Christianity. So, you know, you have this denomination, and if you're this denomination, you can't talk to this other denomination. And then you had the uh, exclusivity outside of Christianity, which is if you 
you know, you can't talk to Hindus and or Buddhists or Muslims. And he was like, look, in the presence of God, none of this matters. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female or, you know, of some particular ethnic group or race or whatever. You're just a human spirit. And so he really wanted to promote that and to uplift that. And so at this church, he actually found that, because he always had silence and stillness as part of somewhere in the worship service, but he found that people wanted more. So, you know, he started having what he called um, pre-worship meditation, which is why, it, you know, you see all these meditations, many of them were written for that time. I mean, it wasn't the first time. He, I mean, he started introducing silence and meditation into his worship services when he was um, dean of the Rackin, Rackin Chapel at Howard University back in uh, the early 30s. But <clears throat> and mostly as part of a Vesper service. But here he found that people wanted to have more, so uh, he would have a pre-worship service uh, where people would come and you know read a meditation and then sit for 20 minutes. And he found when he did that that the request for pastoral care went down. And he, he has a quote in the book basically saying that somehow or other in, that, in, in between the two sort of moments of silence, people found the illumination that they needed so they didn't have to come and talk. It's so beautiful in some ways to uh, think of it that way. And, and, and it makes me wonder, what would it be like if there was a time for quiet and silence in all worship services, you know, where people could just sit and let their spirits rest for a few minutes um, and let their minds rest for a few minutes? Uh, I think that there's been a shift. I'm not sure if it's at the species level or what level it's at, but I think now there's even more of a desire for having this kind of transcendent experience um, that sometimes people just sort of accidentally happen because they happen to be standing looking at a, a sunset or they, you know, feel some stillness outside in nature and can feel like they're connecting to the all. So, and not to, not to say that people are necessarily going to have those experiences, but there is something special about sitting with other people who are doing the same thing. Um, and I, I've, I've had that experience. I'm not sure if you've had that experience of, of sitting in, in, in quiet or, or silence You're individually, and then you do it with a group. It's just like it takes you deeper or something. Mm. Yeah, and you can feel the, a stronger connection. Yes, I totally agree. And I've had other people in meditation groups I lead that say, I just, it's so different when we get together than when we're apart and that I can go deeper. So I think that we're in the midst of a, uh, some people might describe it as a contemplative reformation of the church, that there is this call that, that I think is coming from the spirit, you know, for us to kind of back up from all the noise of the world and to, you know, to, to an invitation to deeper listening. And then that's where our guide is. 
um, in some ways. It's the link to God, you know, if, if, if we're not open or cannot hear the voice to at least pay attention to that, that intuitive sense that we may have. I think that's our guide. When it's like we're moving from um, uniformity to um, sort of a diversity and unity. Yes, I love which that. Is, yeah, which is very much like nature or even like a good garden. I know you're a gardener. It's like the more species you have in the garden, uh, the more bees it can support, the more bugs it can support, the more life there is. And and Howard Thurman had that connection to nature as, as you do. It's, it's like, yeah, how, what, what do you think of that? Well, just think about wildlife. You know, there's, there's diversity in wildlife, and you need it. It's almost like the ecosystem needs all these various things to keep it going. And I, I, have, I, I don't quite understand why we haven't actually been able to understand that for the human family, right? That we need each and every part uh, for the whole. And if there's some missing part, then we're, we're still lost. So, and I think Howard Thurman certainly believed uh, that um, it was important to be able to invite all of those who um, are part of that family. And uh, he, he had a quote that said, community cannot for long feed on itself. It can only flourish with the coming of others from beyond. They're unknown and undiscovered brothers and sisters. So well, it certainly speaks to diversity. I mean, it oh. speaks to this, uh, of, uh, like a vigor or more vigor as a species, a community. Yes, yes. That that the the community needs all of it, and if you're going to separate out a part, it can't continue like that. It has to be able to, you know, to embrace all of its parts. Otherwise, it's not going to last. Well, I wonder if that's what's... I mean, there's been many wake-up calls for us as a species, and we always think our time is unique and special, but there's, there certainly seems to be all these nudges going on right now. Did you sense that? Oh, absolutely. I, you know, of course called the pandemic a holy interruption from the beginning, where we were forced to slow down. And um, perhaps some people talk, took the time to, to use it as an opportunity for reflection on their lives and what were they doing. And, because you know, beforehand, and I'm not quite sure if this is the same in Canada, but people are just running around and it was busy, busy, busy all the time. And, uh, there was no space, as, as uh, Thurman says, there's no space for cultivating the inner life. There's no space. There was no space to walk with God. You know, there was no space to be who you are. So, and, it, and it's so easy, you know, to, to get sucked into that vortex of uh, busyness. Um, I, I wish I could remember the... Uh, person who wrote uh, the article, The Demon of Busyness. <laughs> mm. you, you can get so busy that 
you just lose touch with yourself. And and whose chain is that anyway? <laughs> right. <laughs> That's definitely a case of where you you're you're not you're certainly not listening for the sound of the genuine there. Right? So yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if we all listen to the sound of the genuine ourselves and then trust that in each other, Howard Thurman believed um, that there would be social change. Is that, is, is that the case? Well, I, I think he felt that uh, certainly having a regular spiritual practice, you know, prayer and uh, uh, being committed to something, um, that, that, you know, each time that we made that connection, that had that encounter, he talks about that in the creative encounter, that it should change us. It should change us neurologically. It should change us, um, our thinking. It should change um, our behavior. And I think it's because in some ways you're chiseling, chiseling away the, that, that ego that says you are this, this, and this, and, 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 and those parts of that that uh, operate off of, uh, on me because I'm not you. Um, you know, totally constructed, socially constructed. Um, but I think we're all being pulled in some ways. You know, we have this, this pull in us towards unity. But basically, uh, Thurman believed hate was against life because life was unity. And so, and when you think about hate, uh, it basically means that you are, you are, you are taking a part out and, and separating it from the whole and saying, I don't like this part. Uh, and so he, he, not only did he believe that um, it was something that would uh, sort of dry up your uh, um, creativity, uh, but he felt that that's something that uh, Jesus made clear in the gospel. So one of his uh, quotes from uh, Jesus and Disinherited says, Jesus rejected hatred because he saw that hatred meant death to the mind death to the spirit, and death to the communion with his father. He affirmed life, and hatred was the great denial. So life is about unity. It's about, you know, life with the capital L, right? It's about unity. And um, that uh, to, to engage in hatred was to, uh, to find a way to uh, break up that unity. He also felt that, uh, and it's just such a remarkable challenge, but he felt like if you encounter someone who is hateful, that um, you needed to remember that they were still a holy child of God. And part of your call was to continue to love them into knowing or into becoming aware that they were also holy children. So as a holy child of God, you wouldn't be hating anybody if you really truly believe that. Well, that's the great work, isn't it? it <laughs> it's, I mean, that's the great work, especially yes. 
you know, when you experience it personally, when you're dis- disinherited or you have the state firing tear gas at you or batons beating you or because of the, the color of your skin, someone says words at you or rejects you or because you're sexual. I mean, that's that's where we really we haven't ch- we are changing, but that's where we're at today. And that's our challenge. It uh, is. I, it is our challenge. But I think that was the beauty of the civil rights movement, which was the teaching was to continue to love and to move forward, regardless of how violent the, the state was, right? Um, that there was no reason for you to attack back. I mean, it just took the higher moral ground um, in so many ways. It does. Yet it seems like like both in Canada and the United States, we're, we're no saints up here either, is that there's such a political discord now where each side sort of does hate each other sometimes. Like even sometimes it feels like even in the protests, um, like, yeah, the, how, how do you, I don't know if you've in your own life, like how do you transform hate into this love? I mean, that's, that's like the, uh, you could make, I don't, I don't want to say make money on it. That's the Western world. But I mean, that's like the, the paradigm. It's like, it's the hidden treasure. How do you, how do you, like, how, how would you answer that? How do you convert hate, which just seems so natural sometimes because we're, like he, Howard Thurman talks about, it's almost enculturated in us, no matter if we're the disinherited or the privileged, that there's fear, there's deception, then there's hatred. And so he talks about you have to destroy them. But how? how, how? Well, I, I, I can't speak for Howard Thurman on this, but I can say that, at least in my own experience and in my own life, the missing mediation point is forgiveness. And I, you know, for me, forgiveness is a process. It's a spiritual discipline. So it's something that you have to practice. And it's something that you have to uh, work on every day. So I actually keep a forgiveness list. (laughs) I have many people on it. Uh, who have either attacked me or said something or done something that I found offensive. And I also have some political figures on it. I always have. (laughs) And so (laughs) I just go through my list. This is is actually a prescription I give to uh, a number of people who are ready to hear that um, in spiritual direction, which is that I think you need a list. And I think you need to go through the list and, you know, just lay out the names. I forgive you, Larita. I forgive you, Trevor. I forgive you, Bob. I forgive you, Lori. Um, and um, and I, 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 I want to share that uh, in my experience, what happens is, is something remarkable. So say, for instance, you are hating someone. And I, I can actually give the example of Many years ago, uh, when my father would call, my blood would boil, right? And it wasn't that I really hated him, but I just was not having, you know, uh, it was very challenging. What I learned, though, by through the forgiveness practice is that over time, it shifted my perception from this, you know, very challenging, difficult person to 
seeing more than that, more than that particular aspect about him. And I think it was a gift of the spirit, you know, the gift of to be able to slowly but surely shift my perception. I learned some things about my father, like for example, he fought in, he left high school to fight in World War II, but returned to a segregated South. It was, you know, treated as a second-class citizen after, as he said, nearly dying, you know, for, for the United States. And I, yeah, and I'm sure that had an impact on him. So, I, I, I find that this is this process of, um, <clears throat> of forgiveness takes a while, and that you can't just, you know, for me, I can't just jump up and say, okay, I forgive you and move on, right? It depends, of course, on the, I guess, the degree of the offense and how long it's been going on, right? And then I also learned, too, that, um, <clears throat> you know, my, my mother had involved me in a little triangulation. So, so that partly, you know, as I listened to her, you know, I heard things about my father that as I began to learn more about him, you know, were their issues, really. They weren't mine. So, so it, was, it was actually a beautiful unfolding and shift in my relationship with him. But I had to do the practice. And, um, and I, many years ago, I, I read a book called Making Peace with Your Parents by Harold Bloomfield. And uh, it sort of introduced this idea of making it a practice. And so uh, I actually... Uh, Followed that, uh, and like I said, it, it takes some time, but uh, I found that I was done when I could think about my father and feel happy or neutral or compassionate. You know, those were sort of the keys that I, I think the shift was sort of complete, or that you could feel some love or tenderness um, and compassion for someone who was probably very much like I was, I mean, I can't imagine at 17 years old, leaving high school to go fight a war in Europe someplace. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was just unbelievable in some ways. So, so I, I think that the forgiveness process is probably the mediating force. And although, you know, Thurman doesn't talk a lot about it, Jesus does in, in the Gospels. Uh, and uh, I think, I believe that uh, it's the way that you are able to let go of this, I call it the burden of unforgiveness, right? Because you're ruminating about it and it's disturbing your peace of mind. And you, you know, you really can't be settled if in fact there's somebody in your life that you can't stand. Uh, so it, 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 it takes, it, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's like all other things. It's, it's like a spiral, you know, so you sort of get rid of one level and then another level arises, sort of. But it certainly uh, lightens the heart and, uh, you know, shifts relationships. And so it's certainly crucial for marriage if you want to stay married. <laughs> Or any kind of sustained relationship, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other part, though, to it is that, and I think this is this is where uh, Thurman uh, speaks, perhaps more deeply and clearly, is that 
Oftentimes, <clears throat> we condemn people because we're afraid. Um, and so you have to begin to examine where is this fear coming from? And can you trust God enough to be able to let that fear go? Uh, and oftentimes, you know, we, we either are condemning someone for something that's happened in the past or something that, or we think it's going to affect something in the future. And so by engaging in this practice in the present, I think it allows us to also work on our need for that radical trust in God that can help us begin to chop away that fear that is sort of also at the, at the bottom of the lack of forgiveness. It's like, you know, if you had a situation with your supervisor or you get fired and, you know, you're just beyond yourself. And so, you know, you have to put your, that supervisor on the forgiveness list. Meanwhile, you know, asking for, uh, you know, what are you going to do next? Or as, as I tell some of my directees, well, then you need to go to God and ask for your next assignment. <laughs> as, you know, it's a different way, you know, to look at that. But, and certainly for me, and, and particularly if any time that I ran into any clear cases of discrimination, that's exactly what I did. And there would always be some way to work around that. It's like, okay, this is not working out over here. All right. So where, where do I need to be? And perhaps maybe... It's not here in an environment that's hostile or is trying to keep me from progressing in my career. This process we're talking about that you've been sharing is really completely uh, not a straight line like our world likes. It's, it's not... It's not a 10-point plan. It's it's not it's not like life insurance for the future. It's a it's a really moment by moment as you were saying going in to a sacred presence that makes who you are and then going out and just doing that each day almost and maybe sometimes more than once a day. Maybe you have to do it 10 times in a day. Have you experienced it that way? Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, when I was when, I, when I'm in the depths of a situation where I'm engaged in a lot of ruminating, it's whenever it comes up. So every time that person comes up or I'm thinking about, oh, that was horrible, and why did they say that, and whatever, you know, I pause and say, well, I forgive you, Barbara. Yeah. So, so for me, it's, you know, once in the morning, once in the evening, and any time that person comes to mind. Because they're disrupting your peace and your joy. Well, if you turn on the TV today, you have lots of opportunities, depending on what side of the political divide you want to be. <laughs> yeah, there's lots, there, there certainly are uh, many possibilities. And I, like I said, I keep a, a running um, forgiveness list and I have people from both sides on my list. So I don't, I'm, I'm not, uh, not particular in that way. Well, what wisdom would you share with people as as we face this deep uncertainty right now? We have a pandemic. Uh, I'd say in North America, we have political uncertainty. It seems like uh, the political 
well, just we're, we're, we, there's no middle left in the political landscape anymore across North America, and and then we have we have the disin the disinherited uh, with their backs up against the wall, and we're getting more economic disparity. There's so many things happening. Like, how do we how do we work with that each day and not be consumed by it? Well, the first thing I would say is that it's really important to stay in the present, certainly the present day. You can only take one day at a time when you're in the midst of a crisis. And, uh, and I've been in the midst of the medical crises, right? There's no way that you're going to know what's going to happen tomorrow. And so, you know, the only place, that, the only way or place that I can be in the presence of God is in the present. So it's real important, I think, for people not to be thinking any further than today. If, if I know that sounds crazy, but uh, I think it's real important. The other thing is that history is cyclical. So I've been around long enough to see all kinds of cycles. Um, I haven't seen one quite like this before, but, uh, but I certainly have seen um, a lot of presidents. I've seen a lot of congresses. I've seen a lot of Supreme Courts. I've seen lots of things. And, you know, there's that term, this too will pass. And so eventually this is going to shift. Uh, I was having a, a wonderful conversation with a clergy friend of mine the other day, and I said, ah, this feels like the 40 years out in the desert, you know, <laughs> people wandering. And so he said, well, you know, remember that, that that wasn't exactly 40 years. It was as long as it takes. And so my sense is that we're going to be in uh, the midst of a disruptive cycle until as many people that need to be awakened are awakened, unfortunately. Uh, and uh, because, you know, with the pandemic, we, nobody asked for this. This just came, you know, it's here. Uh, and I think it's real important for people, and I think it's also real important for people to step up their prayer practice. Um, I know that in the many times that I've been in a crisis, um, that the more I prayed or the more that I just took even a pause um, for more prayer, I, I won't say it was easier, but it was it somehow or other, you could still be in the midst of the crisis and maintain some sense of peace. It's like, this is what's going on right now. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. It's not, it wasn't like it was yesterday. And so I'm just going to stay with this. Um, and so, um, and particularly in those organizations where they're caring for, you know, like hospice or the missionaries of the poor, they, you know, they do a lot of praying in order to be able to deal with the kinds of things, uh, situations that they have to confront. So I would also advise people to pause more. And even if it's just for a minute and see if they can just make contact with that presence of God inside, if only for a minute. Um, and then of course, to listen for the guidance. You know, where, what are you being guided to do today? Uh, and tomorrow morning, it will be a different day. And so you can, you know, ask in the morning, well, what am I being guided to do today? 
Um, and so I think it's just really important. I, you know, I typically receive, you know, my guidance in the early morning, or sometimes I may sit in contemplative prayer, um, and I may hear nothing, which is not uncommon. But sometime later in the afternoon when I'm in the kitchen chopping celery, this amazing revelation or idea comes to me, right? And I always say that it's because uh, the spirit needs some space to get through. And if your mind's cluttered up with inner chatter all the time, um, it can't. You can't hear it. Even if, even if it's there, you can't hear it. So giving your mind a rest, giving your heart a rest, uh, giving your spirit a rest by just pausing for a few minutes. Um, and then, you know, the other uh, thing that I've done, because I'm sure that there are lots of people who are full of anxiety um, and agitation about what's going to happen, again, fear-based, I often will call on the entity that I'm closest to, whether it's the spirit or Jesus or Buddha or whatever it is for you, to, to, for some help. Can you take this anxiety from me? I just really don't want to walk around with this anxiety. And I have found remarkably that in 20 or 30 minutes, it's gone. Now, that, I, and I just want to say, that may not necessarily work for someone who has some clinical form of depression or you know, anxiety and depression. Um, because perhaps maybe, you know, they have some kind of genetic, you know, uh, issue or, or they have had some biochemical change in their brain and they really do need to have some kind of form of medication. But, but in, you know, sort of something like this, um, I think that uh, it's important to ask for help. And then the final thing is, if at all possible, go outside. And I think Thurman would agree that being outside with, you know, just getting some fresh air, uh, being with the, being, being in the stillness of nature, stillness of nature is so healing, so healing. Um, being around the birds or watching the bees pollinate, you know, flowers and vegetables, et cetera. Um, there's something very, peaceful about that and very restorative. So I would certainly encourage people whenever they can to uh, go outside and just be. You don't have to do anything. Maybe you might want to watch the clouds, you know, going across the sky or the rain falling on the ground or whatever happens to be happening. But there's, you know, I think a lot of time. I think for right now, there are lots of people who are feel like they need to be locked up in their houses. And they certainly don't need to be out in public, certain public spaces, but I think they can go outside or, or even take a drive to a nature preserve or someplace uh, with their mask or whatever and just enjoy the fresh air. Yeah, nature so, is so healing. I agree with you totally. And it's sort of like it's it's letting go when we're in nature too to to hear its sound of the genuine, mm -hmm. which is a lot slower than mine if I'm truthful. And uh, it, it there's yeah I just think of how the the quote you shared of uh, of the wood, 
Uh, could you share it again? Of the sure. grain. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's it's uh, follow the grain in your own wood. It is precisely the unique, special, and unrepeatable being of the beloved that inspires desire and devotion. You know, to come up with that quote, or just to write that or say it, I mean, it wasn't, it speaks to Howard Thurman looking at nature, like just being there. Yes. And I mean, and typically what you will see, uh, you know, on websites is follow the grain in your own wood. I mean, the other second part is usually not with it, but that's enough, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if, you, if mm-hmm. you think about following the grain of your own wood, yeah, um, or be, or be the beautiful flower in your garden. You don't have to be another flower. Yeah, just be be yours. Or in my book, you know, I talk about my heart talks about the stars in the sky. They're not trying to be, you know, bright or beautiful. They just are. Do you have one final quote that uh, either from your book or from uh, Howard Thurman that you'd like to share with us? Well, this one I think is appropriate for the, the times that we're in. I mean, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about social change and about, uh, you know, what needs to be done. And, and of course, I've been, you know, an advocate of, of sacred activism, that being differentiated from uh, social activism by inviting the spirit to guide you in whatever it is that you feel you're being called to do. And um, sometimes I read things, it sounds as if sacred activism started, you know, like 20 years ago, but we've, you know, we have a history of, certainly in Christianity of sacred activists, you know, like Moses was a sacred activist, right? And many, many in the, in the Old Testament, you have um, Jesus, of course, was a sacred activist. Um, and then, you know, you just have people since that time. Gandhi was a sacred activist. And um, obviously, Howard Thurman was, although he didn't call it that, uh, who then inspired Martin Luther King, who was a sacred activist as well. So Harriet, Harriet Tubman um, was another one, Sojourner Truth. I mean, there's many people uh, who would fall under that category of a person and I, I'm just thinking also of the Society of Friends, all the Quaker activists who, you know, clearly were listening for guidance about how to uh, nonviolently create change. In so, you know, we have sort of a history of that. But one of the uh, quotes from uh, Howard Thurman's book, Footprints of the Dream, is the movement of the Spirit of God in the hearts of men and women often caused them to act against the spirit of their times or causes them to anticipate a spirit which is yet in the making. In a moment of dedication, they are given wisdom and courage to dare a deed that challenges and to kindle a hope that inspires. That's really lovely, a hope that inspires. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... and and, and and so here you have just such a great example of sacred activism, the movement of the spirit of God in the hearts of men and women often caused them to act against the spirit of their times, right? The zeitgeist or causes them to anticipate a spirit which is yet in the making. And I think this is so important for people to understand is this, we're not, the story's not over yet. 
certainly the story on the pandemic, we don't know what's going to be, you know, at the, at the end. It could be a rainbow for all we know, right? But uh, I think it's important for uh, people to realize that it's still going. The story's, the story's not done. And then to say, in a moment of dedication, they are given with they are given wisdom and courage to dare indeed that challenges and to kindle a hope that inspires. So yes, to dare indeed that might challenge the existing social order, but to also give hope to those who are feeling hopeless that oh, this is never going to happen. So uh, great, great, great uh, example of sort of sacred activism explained in a quote. It really is because, you know, the pandemic was I don't mean this in a facetious way. So it was like a, a bonus thing that happened to us. Like we weren't expecting it, um, but it certainly overturned stuff. And I think sometimes when I hear from friends or other people that I work with or just other people, there, there's sometimes just this hopelessness of how can we tackle some of these major things that are waiting for us. We include the pandemic now and then um, we have climate change. We're, we're losing species extinction at a great rate. And then we have all the all the ways our relationships of human species affects each other and the hatred that we share between each other and the violence. And it's like, well, you know, maybe it's the time we hear these words of Howard Thurman, maybe again, oh. afresh. Maybe it's time, like even your book that you wrote on listening to your heart speaks to that too. We Maybe we haven't been listening to our heart. Maybe we haven't been listening to the spirit. And when the pandemic's over, this is all, everything else is waiting for us still. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we are in a time of multiple pandemics, clearly. That doesn't mean that hope is lost. It just means that, uh, and I think it's akin to any crises that we encounter, whether it's a medical crisis or, uh, you know, it might be loss of a job or loss of a loved one. You know, there are times when it just, it's ugly. It feels horrible. And we don't think we're going to be able to get through it, but we do. And I, and I think that's uh, the gift of age, maybe, or, or you know, time, uh, that you have wisdom about certain kinds of things. Um, and you, you come to understand that uh, this too will pass. But what it is that we're doing now that we have been given this opportunity of time, of slowing down, it's, you know, it's important to be able to utilize that time in some effective ways, not necessarily to binge watch <laughs> our television or movies, but, but to, to you know, utilize that time to heal our own lives. I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to be part of a mo uh, major social movement if in fact you're so disheartened or your life is such a mess that you can't even offer yourself. Right. So anything you need to clean up, <laughs> anything that you might need to uh, uh, to allow uh, to be healed in you, this is a grand time to do that, because, yes, there's still going to be work to be done after the uh, after the, the the coronavirus pandemic. But, you know, we also have the 
um, social uh, movement protests, uh, racial conflict um, pandemic, and we have the environmental pandemic, um, you know, that is going to affect everyone, no matter where you are. So, yeah, I, I, I think this is a great time for uh, people to uh, continue to cultivate a spiritual life, to uh, cultivate a personal relationship with God or Holy One or mystery or the great transcendence, whatever you want to describe it as. This is a wonderful time to, uh, to work on that and um, to just be in touch with the genuine in yourself. What's been such a blessing and thank you for sharing your own life story and wisdom and the the wisdom of Howard Thurman and spending this time with us. I am I've I've been blessed and I just want to thank you. Well, I want to thank you for inviting me. I uh, am grateful to have this opportunity to even reflect on some of these ideas myself and um, to you know, bring to me the joy of my own calling, which is to expose more people to Howard Thurman, to expose more people to contemplative spirituality, and to expose more people to uh, the power and wonder of the spirit in our lives. I mean, it's a great spiritual resource that I think many have left untapped. And I think their lives can be transformed by inviting the spirit in to, to give them some guidance. What, what would you have a book or, or or two that you would sit you would recommend to people who are coming to Howard Thurman for the first time? Well, I think people would would really enjoy Meditations of the Heart. I mean, it it covers a number of areas, but it's got it has in some ways uh, a compilation of many of the meditations that he wrote for these times of quiet and stillness. It's some beautiful meditations in it. Uh, and uh, I would definitely recommend his uh, autobiography uh, because uh, he really talks about how he was able to sort of uh, come to this, well, come to these ideas. You know, you sort of, you get to see the evolution of, uh, the ideas that made him who he was. And uh, I think it's really Im important. A and of course, Jesus and the Disinherited, which is uh, you know sort of the classic book that led to many being inspired to really become active in the civil rights movement. You know, he has many more. <laughs> I love the uh, Inward Journey, which is again, a book of meditations and they're great for if you're about to sit down for some quiet time, you know, to just sort of read it first and then, um, you know, sit with it. Uh, but, you know, he has more than 20 books out there, so uh, you could be reading for, you know, a long time. Uh, and, uh, but I think, you know, to read uh, his books of meditations as well as, uh, it, you know, the other two that I mentioned, I think are a great place to start. Um, for those who are clergy and, and wanting to think about innovative ways to maybe restructure their congregations, they might want to read Footprints of a Dream, which is the 
story of the founding of, of the Church of the Fellowship of All Peoples. It's got some wonderful stories and ideas about creative uses of silence and uh, uh, introducing things like uh, liturgical dance and um, other, other aspects that might uh, engage uh, people. Thurman was very much uh, one who believed that you couldn't teach spirituality, but it could be caught. And so he would experiment with you know, things like uh, living Madonna or um, uh, literature, bring, bringing some Shakespeare into <laughs> to, uh, Vesper service to just create some kind of spiritual electricity um, and uh, to engage people uh, with art and a variety of things that, that might um, open up that spirit, you know, to, uh, to others. Uh, so I, I, uh, I believe that um, he really uh, gave us uh, so many gifts. And, and I just want to mention this one last quote. He says, to love is to make of one's heart a swinging door. What sparked your curiosity in this episode? Do you sense a resiliency that was hidden before? From the conversation, where is hope leading you? If you are enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, consider rating it, and sharing it with family and friends. This podcast is produced by McKillop United Church. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for the generosity of all of our donors. If you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com or mckillopunited.ca slash donate. Peace and blessings to you.